welcome to the Servants of Fire podcast, where we dive into real-life application of the prophetic, evangelism, pastoring, healing, and so much more. We'll have special guests and your host, Alvin Kaufman. Hey everyone, it's Alvin here, Servants of Fire podcast. William Paul Young is my guest today. We go over a bunch of great stuff on processing through hard issues. William Paul Young is the author of The Shack, and this book has gone from prisons all over the world, and people have found healing in their hearts because of reading this book. And I was one that kind of looked at the backstory to see what Paul went through when he was younger, and it was very relatable for me. And I have been on a journey of finding healing from past sexual abuse when I was a teenager. Um, so it happened for about three to four years. And when I came across this material, uh, something inside of me just said, wow, I need to interview this guy. And it's such an honor to have him on here. And I really pray that as you listen to this, that, uh, the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart and speak, um, to you and challenge you to take risks, to be vulnerable, with your story and be vulnerable in the areas of your life uh, that may look messy. And so I just uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode. Uh, find us on iTunes, give us a rating, and uh, thank you so much for taking time to listen. All right, thank you so much for joining me today, Paul. Um, is that your preferred name that I call you, Paul? Oh, absolutely. I'm one of four generations of Williams, none of who go by William. So <laughs> <laughs> that works for me. Well, um, First, if you want to maybe just tell, um, probably most people know who you are already, but maybe just give a little background of your story. Uh, I think what we will be touching on today is kind of processing through pain and, uh, you know, sexual abuse history and things like that. So if maybe you want to just do your background uh, a little bit and that would be great. Sure. So um, Canadian born, uh, first born missionary kid, preacher's kid. So a third culture kid. Um, a year old when we move into the highlands of New Guinea. I grew up in a culture that is not white. And um, I'm, I'm the informant when the translators come in. When I'm five years old, I'm the one who can speak it fluently and English. Um, didn't have a lot of connection with my parents. They were uh, of the generation where when you made the sacrifice, you sacrificed your children also hmm. to do the mission. And, um, and they just, they believed that if they did the work of God, God would take care of the kids. And, um, so the tribal people were my family. They mm -hmm. raised me, they loved me, they cared for me, and they were the first abusers. So the sexual abuse started in the tribal culture. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, at six, I was sent away to boarding school. Uh, and the big boys would come at night and molest the little boys. And, um. So that's where the sexual abuse part of it was. The, um, on top of that, I had a very difficult relationship with my father. I didn't know what a damaged man he was and what kind of baggage he brought. Um, but uh, his father had broken his capacity to be a, a father before I ever showed up and then his father before him. I just happen to know now my whole history that goes back generations. And so he was, um, he was an abusive disciplinarian, very angry young man. Desperate for God, really, truly, had a heart for God, but never dealt with his own damage. And um, my mother was a follower, so she was in his shadow. And uh, my my first four months at boarding school, I came back and 
called her Aunt Betty because mm. there were two white women at boarding school named Betty. And one of them, actually, her name was Betty White. <laughs> so how, that, what else do you call white women? Bettys. And my mom's name's not Betty, but uh, uh, that's how disconnected I was. And so by the time I was six or seven, um, completely feeling like I was on my own trying to survive in, in a world that I didn't understand. At 10, we come back to Canada and my father becomes an itinerant pastor. I'm in 13 schools before I graduate high school. And, um, and so leaving was part of the survival mechanism. It just was ingrained. Um, the shack then becomes the metaphor for the house on the inside that people help you build. And for mm. those of us who didn't get good help, we are so grateful when we hear the stories of those who do. Um, but for many of us, the shack becomes the, the broken place. It's our own soul. It's our own broken heart. And that's where we then store all of our addictions and hide our secrets. And that's where we lock up shame that begins to poison everything about us. And, and, uh, and our addictions sit inside that place. And we never want another human being to enter that space because we're terrified that they will be as disgusted with us as we already feel about ourselves. Mm. And so we work hard. We, you know, we, we, uh, we don't trust anybody. We don't actually trust God. So many of us gravitate to some form of performance religion, hoping that yeah. if we just work hard enough, that maybe we can earn the affection and the approval of God. Oh. And, um, yeah. So shame becomes the dominant motivator and uh, fear of being exposed. That is also such a powerful force. And then we develop all these other survival skills that come with this kind of damage, mm -hmm. hypervigilance, uh, disassociation, um, splitting, whatever. And, uh, and then we just try to survive. We just, you know, so, so when somebody gives us that sense of approval and affection, we're incredibly grateful, sometimes overly much, but we also don't believe them. Mm because they don't know the truth about us. And then uh, on top of this, if all of that abuse wasn't enough, uh, many of us grew up with a theology that reinforced it. it. It it did not give us a way out. It gave us a God who was just like my dad. It gave us um, a, a God who required performance and sacrifice. And, and um, you know, it'd be one thing if we were required to perform and we started from zero, but those of us who have been hurt like this, we don't start from zero. We're mm. trying to get to zero our whole lives. Yeah. And, um, and that becomes, you know, the pattern of our existence. And, and it's, it's a constant series of failures and trying to live up to the expectations of the people around us. And a lot of them are perceived, you know, cause we don't know how to distinguish between a, an observation and a value statement. Uh, and uh, I, dr I drug this all the way into my marriage, you know, and so when Kim would say, don't mix the colors with the whites, I'd hear her say, I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. Wow. Yeah. 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 That, that's, yeah. Thank you for <laughs> being so vulnerable. And uh, it's a part, um, what would you say, and maybe some of the listeners or even men aren't people that have been abused so to speak, but even have a hard father. But what what would you say are some telltale signs 
that they have something going on under the surface that they need to deal with. Um, and I think you say it well in a in an interview. I heard you say that I can be the same when I'm with my young granddaughter as when I'm alone. You know, and you didn't know that that was normal for you. Can you maybe explain a little bit of that? I didn't know it was possible for me, and yeah. uh, and so I was a different person. So what I did instead of living from the shack, which is totally a broken place, full of lies, full of you know, because the lying is a survival skill. Um, what I did is I built a facade outside the shack that I could paint as fast as I could pick up people's expectations. And so the question then becomes, who do you need me to be or want me to be? Hmm. I can do that. Just, just tell me what you want me to be. And, and I began to live from the outside in. So I was a different person depending on the audience and part of, um, sexual abuse survivors is hypervigilance. That is we, we have an uncanny ability to pick up the vibrations in the room. We can also see what's dangerous and, and feel it. And we have no boundaries. That's another big problem, is that our boundaries have been so blasted that we are, we are desperate for unconditional love. And we will, we will take really unhealthy risks for the perception that we might get it. And... Um, and so all of a sudden, especially, and, and it's almost like we're drawn to sick people also. We're, we're broken and we're drawn to broken people. It's almost like we have this ability to pick them out of a crowd and, mm. and find each other. So that's a sign, you know, um, the sign that you have to shade the truth, that yeah. you're not really a truth teller. There is a sign. There's an evidence. The fact that you have secrets, there is evidence you know, that you, you cannot tell your secrets because the terror of having to deal with the fallout is too great. So I'd rather live with the poison than I know hmm. than the potential losses that I perceive. And, and, uh, so you're always walking a tightrope and you're always at risk. So for those of us who come from a shame background, even a compliment is now a new set of expectations to perform. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So so we will defer compliments. We was like, oh, I mean, we will just we will deflect them. We will we will. It's like, don't please don't compliment me because now I've got a, a new standard of perfection hmm. that I need to perform up to. And um, and so sh those of us who are shame based um, will deflect anything that seems to be real or uh, uh, good or or that you know that indicates that we might have some worth because we actually feel like we're just a piece of shit in in the first place you know yeah. and then our theology told us we were <laughs> and then uh, you know I, I grew up with total depravity and you're worthless and god loves you because that's the way god is so he's yeah. kind kind of stuck loving you he doesn't like you but you know at, at least he sent jesus to save him from god the father it's just this really convoluted mess, yeah. and it's and it's one thing for people to hate me, but for for God to to be in that performance orientation, and it's only short lived. It's only as good as you can put a string of days together in which you don't screw up, you know, hmm. and then and then the failure just gets exacerbated. So you tend to drive deeper and deeper into cycles of addiction. So you know, addiction itself is a 
and it's and it can be workaholism, it can be ministryaholism, it can be, you know, sexual addictions, um, uh, and and you can look at your relationships. You should be able to look at the integrity of your relationships and the authenticity, and that's a that's a that's a sign, or you know, how much do you want to be exposed, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 the terror, and. And it's really a crazy thing because the thing that keeps you alive are these little bits of light. You know, when somebody is kind or or loving toward you, mm-hmm. but you're caught because I can't tell you my secrets because then you'll hate me. But when you're kind to me, I, I'm I'm grateful. I'll latch on to it. But I already I know in the depths of my heart that I've just fooled you. Yeah, because there's nothing good in me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it said. You know, it's like you can't. If you only knew my secret, you wouldn't actually love me. So, just like you said, you deflect those words of love that you do need, but inevitably you don't believe them because you can't love yourself in that respect yet. Yeah. How stuck is that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, I've been there on my journey in healing a lot of. Uh, the things that I've dealt with too, but um, what are some of the processes and the things that you did in your journey to get healing for yourself? Well, some of them weren't chosen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of us are so broken that we have to get caught. Yeah. And that's a really sad thing. And it's not fair to the people around mm. us at all. And um, um, I wish I'd have, I'd have gotten to the place where I had enough sense of substance that I asked for help hmm. but I actually got caught and and getting exposed is essential it's essential in fact when it says the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin we have a, so much baggage associated with that word but it but the word convict means to expose hmm. and the word sin Traditionally, in a, my, with my people, it was missing the mark, and that was a behavioral statement. Yeah. But it's actually an ontological statement. That is, there is a truth about your being that you're missing. You mm. become less than human. That's good. And so the, the Holy Spirit has come to expose that which keeps you from being fully human and fully alive. And uh, like uh, Leanne Payne says, the unexposed is the unhealed. Mm. And if you've got a bad view of God, you think that exposure is humiliation. Wow. And and so you think that if that's why you've got to keep it hidden. And so it's you drive yourself into a, an absolutely lose lose situation. Um, one. So exposure is one, which is an exposure to relationships. It's becoming a truth teller, which most of us. That is a journey because the movement towards truth-telling is a movement towards authentic honesty. And and our survival mechanisms in terms of shading the truth and being liars mm-hmm. is so profound that that we're not only good at, at twisting it so that those around us are fooled, but we learn to fool ourselves. Um, um, l- learning to face what we've done. I like owning it. Um, but that requires exposure. That requires relationship. And and for a lot of us, we need a good therapist. Hmm. You know, we need some help. And sometimes 
we need somebody who is paid to be trustworthy so that we learn how to trust. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really, uh, <laughs> just even in my journey, I know that, uh, it, in a way, yeah, it was exposure and it was, uh, just in, in a place of a, a ministry school that I was at where I came out with my secret in front of a bunch of people who, who I didn't know that well, but at the same time, they loved me through that secret mm -hmm. that I exposed. And I think community, that's where, I, I mean, I know I can walk into a church and I know that there's authentic relationship there because I yeah. just know. And and now if, if it's not, I'm not really drawn to that place because I'm like, I don't think I, I I do believe that people have lots of secrets there, but to me, authentic relationship is built through intimacy and seeing what's going on in each other's lives. Yep. Um, yep. And can you maybe talk about how like I mean, the devil uses such a breeding ground as religion to keep people in their shame and stuff like that. But can you just talk about the journey out of uh, kind of that religious mindset as well that you had? Um, I know I've heard other messages that you've had, but where did you come to learn about the God who really loves you? Oh, it was slow, painful, incremental. And, um, you know, here's a crazy thing. I could see things that were true, but I couldn't live them. I mean, I saw them before I was able to, they were in, my, I could see them with my head. And this is one of the, one of the signs of that you're messed up is that, that you live in your head. That's, hmm. Everything below your neck's busted, but you know you don't have access to your emotional world yeah. in any kind of authentic way. So as as you shut down and move to your head, um, I became an intellectual rationalist and all that. Wow. But my spectrum of emotional world just shrunk and shrunk and shrunk until they were just a few shades of gray. Hmm. And um, and and yet I had moments where I had clarity about the goodness of God, that God would break through. Uh, the, th the journey is the integration between your head and your heart and your, your whole person, right? And, uh, and that involves the lies that you believe about uh, God. It involves the lies you believe about yourself. It involves unearthing the lies and the agreements that you've made throughout your, your life. And, um, and, and I was working on some of that when I, when I was young, when I was a kid, I was trying to, uh, cause I was desperate for, for God. Jesus was the only person who ever was a part of my, my life who didn't leave, mm. you know? And so I was, I held on to that. And then, um, as I drifted more and more into intellectuality, because that's where my certainty was grounded. You know, I could, I felt a little bit more in control there and I was good with words. I didn't think I was actually smart or creative. I just felt like I was good at fooling people <laughs> and another piece of shame. Right. Yeah. But it turns out that my intelligence and my creativity empowered my ability to hide. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's a, a double bind. And, um, but I, I was struggling with the theology ever since I can remember. You know, and it was my dad's theology. And I went I went back to Bible school where my dad went and graduated from all those years ago, you know. And so I went there and um, and I wrestled with it. And right. And I was uh, 
I was perceived to be rebellious. And I, I mean, there was a part of me that definitely had a chip on his shoulder, no doubt. But underneath that, I was actually trying to find some integration between theology and experience. And, but I, I wasn't willing to do the work that goes inside, mm-hmm. you know, um, I wanted God to stay outside where I could think about him and have great ideas and then uh, and and then own the conversation there. I didn't wow. want to go in I didn't want to go inside where God actually lived with me. Hmm. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's powerful. Hmm. Yeah, I I think for me too it's finding that place where I need to feel in my heart to come alive, you know, rather than like you said, intellectually, <laughs> I don't know how you worded it. It was, it was better than I did, but, um, but yeah, I, I heard you say a statement on a podcast and it was, uh, something similar to what you just said, but you said that I could keep people away with my words or I could cut people up. Does that make resonate with you? Can you, can you explain oh, yeah. that a little bit more? Yeah. Well, see, I'm not, I'm five foot six, you know, yeah. I'm a little guy. I'm not a big guy. And, uh, so, and I got bullied, I got, I got beat up, I got all that. And so I learned to use words, and that's where I hid all my knives. Mm. And I had an advantage, and that is I'm a third culture kid. So I'm, I'm coming into a culture where people, they don't understand that they've already drank the Kool-Aid, mm. right? Because this is their world. And I can come in from the outside, and I can see all kinds of inconsistencies within the culture. Yeah. Or that that person's culture, or how they function, and then that be, I weaponized that. I weaponized my perceptions, and um, and so I could I could then take a three hundred pound man and cut him to his knees wow. by it by by perceiving where his shame center was and attacking it, and I do it in such a nice way that you didn't even realize how brutal it was, and and until you were just left bleeding. And at the same time, you thought that that I was still a good guy. That's how how creative and crafty I was, and um, and so yeah, the words became became my defense mechanism, yeah, uh, my survival mechanism, and um, and and that's what I used. Uh, uh, that's the way I I made it. Well, I didn't really make it, you know, but I I could survive. So now, years after all of this has happened and that you found healing, um, do you have any stories or any, like, with your book, how it's impacted people, even to deal with the things that they're going through? Do you have any any people that you could tell us about? Yeah. So I got a buddy on death row in Tennessee. His name is Terry King. And uh, I've been with Terry King a number of times now. The last one was about, I don't know, three and a half weeks ago. And um, Terry's been on death row for 35 years. Um, I met him because of the shack. The shack's gone through the prisons. I have lots of friends in prison. And I have a P.O. box that I get a lot of mail at, and I get it from two two kinds of people, almost all of them. Elderly people who still write letters and prisoners. Mm. And... uh, you know, so I just, I like I said, I just picked up a few. You know, you can see them. You can always tell because they have the little prison marks and yeah. all wow. that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, so, so Terry, um, 
it was it was the cave scene in the shack that shattered Terry. Mm-hmm. And um, and the first time I met him, we talked about a lot of things, but he wanted to tell me how that scene broke him. And here he'd been in prison and on death row since he was 18 years old. And uh, um, when I met him first, he'd been on on death row for for 33 years. So it's, I've known him now for two years, two and a half. And um, so he is. Um, he said to me, he had never truly owned what he had done until he read that chapter. And he said, here's why. Because in that chapter, Mackenzie is not judged. He is, he is put in the seat of judgment. And the, and the wisdom of God, Sophia, says, look, this is what you do. You judge people and you judge God. And so go ahead and judge. And... And he is asked to judge his own children, and he can't do it. Mm. He can't do it. Yeah. And, and Terry says to me, when I read that chapter, I realized that for all these years, I had never owned what I had done in the killing of a young man. I had never owned it because I still sat in the seat of judgment myself. In my mm. case, I judged the pedophiles on death row. At least I was better than them. Wow. And because, because I sat in a seat of judgment and took a position of self-righteousness, I refused or ignored to deal with what I had done. And I'm sitting listening to this and going, you know how profound this is? <laughs> you know? And I, yeah. I said to Terry, you know, you, um, you live in a world where your prisons are obvious. There's stone and concrete and uh, gravel and, and wire and, and chains and locks. I mean, it's, you have a level of clarity that most people don't mm-hmm. because all of us outside of those prison walls, we are in our own prisons except we can't see them. Mm, and, uh, oh, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> and, um, and every time that I see him, that comes up again. And he said, you know, that that really helped him just to understand his circumstances compared compared with others. So now one of the things that has changed for him is that he tries to find people who will come visit the pedophiles because some of them have not had any visitors in decades. And um, so it has really caused a change in his in his capacity. His capacity to love has grown because he has actually faced up and owned his humanity, what he did, and uh, and there's incredible stories that have rippled out as a result of that, including a relationship that he has with a, uh, a dear friendship with a woman who knew the man, the young man who was um, who was in the military, the young man that he killed, wow. and um, and that relationship um, has brought so much healing to Terry, but it's been a two-way street, and yeah. Terry, my relationship is a two-way street, you know, so. Wow. Again, there you've got a ripple effect. Um, but I hear, I, you know, the greatest, the greatest gift that God has given to me because of what I've written and spoken on is the, an invitation to walk on the holy ground of other people's stories. Hmm. And I hear hundreds and thousands of them. Um, I, was, uh, I was just in Puerto Rico. I mean, I, I just got back this morning, uh, almost noon, and we're at, what, 3 o'clock. Um, and uh, there were, I met a woman named Carrie, and Carrie is from North Carolina. 
and um, and she and her husband were are part of a, a Baptist m- mission to help the Puerto Ricans uh, recover from the hurricane. And the, and this when you know when all media stuff stops, a lot of people it just goes off their radar. But this particular community of faith have been unbelievably consistent of going down there, rebuilding houses, putting roofs on, all of this kind of stuff. Well, about a, uh, a, a little over a year ago, Carrie's mom passed away suddenly, unexpectedly, very young, and um, and Carrie was pregnant. And then late late pregnancy, her her she lost her baby, mm. and it was devastating for her. And somebody handed her a copy of the Shack, mm. and and between the Shack, reading the Shack, and and watching some of the conversations, listening to conversations, stuff that I'd done, it gave her a way through those losses. Well, she, I don't know she's in Puerto Rico. I don't even, I don't know anything about it. But the, the place that I'm doing a writer's workshop at, that's where that group is, is based. They're staying mm. at the church um, where uh, we're doing this little workshop. And, um, and uh, less than a week before I get down there, uh, the team had taken a, some time off and gone surfing. And uh, Carrie's husband... Um, they were in a place where the surf, the surfing guide had said, don't go. And, um, and that's where they were. And a young man got caught in an undertow and Carrie's husband tried to save him and drowned in the process. And that happened less than a week, um, uh, before I got to Puerto Rico. So suddenly here, here I've had such an impact through my writing and work and and now she has the third and a, and an unbelievably brutal loss yeah and i'm there like look at how god plays three dimensional yeah. chess you know that that i end up there when carrie is at this spot and yeah. and i i then become a manifestation and an incarnation of the kindness of God to her because I'm a, I'm one of those golden threads that has now run through her losses. Yeah? Yep. Who could who could plan that, right? <laughs> who you know, only a redeeming genius could put together those that kind of weaving. And so, you know, when I saw her, I just held on to her and she just wept and wept and wept. Wow. And was saying, "Uh, I can't believe you're here, you know. I'm so grateful." <laughs> So maybe one final question here, but um, it just kind of popped into my head. But why do you think that your story and your life has had such an impact on so many people? Uh, a few things. I think it's timing in part, which I had really nothing to do with. That is, I write a story for my kids. I'm not intending to be an author. And God just it's it's a human story. I'm trying to be authentically honest with my kids about my history and my my process, and um, they already knew it. But the the tying of it, the internet being available, the way it flew, it just blew up. Then, as people got to know the story behind the shack, it so resonated. And so, on the one hand, I've got a story of the loss between a parent and a child, which is to me, the greatest loss a human being can experience. And then on the other side, I've got the losses that are compounded in our lives such that so many people get stuck and they get theologically stuck, not just about the character of God, but they think that there's no way forward. 
and and so they're waiting to die in order to come to some sense of wholeness and yeah. and when i told my story and the authenticity of it including you know the adultery that i dragged into my marriage and i didn't drag it into my marriage i did it in my marriage and and uh, and that 11-year journey toward wholeness and re- and reconciliation with Kim, it was like people they don't tell the truth, so we don't know. We don't have any hope. Wow. You know, we don't get hope when people just tell us how great their lives are. Yeah. You know, not for those of us who are mm. broken. We got to know that it's possible to move forward and get out of these holes, you know, that the shack on the inside could actually be mm-hmm. healed. Yeah. And, and so that part of it just, it just blew open so many doors. And all it was is because I, I, I don't have anything to lose, you know? What, my reputation? No, let me tell you about how I screwed up my reputation. You know, what? And, um, and, and my journey of desperation to healing uh, and, and making the choice not to kill myself in that journey, so many people are there. And, uh, and suddenly they've got somebody who's talking about it. I didn't do it so that, you know, it, it would have this kind of yeah. outcome. I did it because it was the right thing to do in the context of what any given conversation was. And suddenly it becomes this this beautiful landscape of brokenness and and redemption yeah. you know the, the grace showed up yeah i'm just getting hit over here I, <laughs> you know even the the bible right? it, it has such messy stories in it where you know god was so <laughs> vulnerable with all of us and and even the stories that he left us in the bible and yet we're so apt to really hide what we're actually going through in our lives. Yeah, think about this. There was no suffering in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before we brought it yeah. to the table. We did We did that. We introduced mm-hmm. suffering. And where does what does God do? Not run away from it. He runs yeah. right into oh, that's it. That's so good. You know? That's so good. All right, Paul, well... Um, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time today to to do this. I know that you're so oh, busy and abs- absolute an honor. Absolutely an honor to be with you. I love your heart and I love the openness of your own journey. I I love that you are hearing the whisper of the father of relentless affection yeah. for you. Yeah, it's yeah. uh you know, it's given me more hope even to share my story uh more openly. And uh, the times that I have, I've found people come up to me after speaking where, you know, people are like, how can you be so vulnerable? And I'm like, this is just normal for me. I have no problem telling this part of my story. But the people that come up to me afterwards and say, like, thank you for sharing this because I was abused when I was younger and I've never told anybody. Mm. And it, it, yeah. it kickstarts their journey yeah. to, I pray, find healing in a process to actually look at what's going on inside rather than just faking it any longer. And yeah. What? Yeah. Like what's the point, right? Yeah. I'd rather take the risk of authenticity than live in the prison that I thought I knew so well and granted me certainty. 
you know, and, and I'm and I'm finding this is happening all over the place. People are moving toward authenticity. Just a, a month ago, I was in Miami. There's a little group called uh, Hope Hope for Life or Hope for Life Miami, and um, and I tell you, it is the most authentic, open, loving community that I think I've ever been around, and that's because they have learned how to tell the truth wow. with each other. And you walk in there, you not only are hugged, you know, to, to the nth degree, but, but they will tell you their stories. They will start and you will share, and it's just what they do. And you know what? I saw some of the most broken people I've ever seen that the church has, has no ability to respond to inside that community being loved wow. to wholeness. And, and that's, and I'm watching this happen. I was in Australia. I'm seeing it there. You know, I saw it in Atlanta. I, I, it's happening. And I'm so grateful to see this beginning mm, to emerge. Well, before you leave us, would you pray for me? Pray for the listeners? Pray for whatever yeah. you feel? Absolutely. Ah, Papa God, you know, we, we have these conversations and it's like it starts to rip apart the insides of us. And, and I just I just want to tell you that I trust you with that. And Holy Spirit, I trust you with how sensitive you are to how uniquely we're wound and how how uniquely we're broken. And I and I just want to tell you, thank you, um, thank you that you don't hurt us more. You know, you you want us to come to wholeness, but you don't rip out of our hands our survival mechanisms that kept us alive until we're ready to let them go, even though those mechanisms cause all kinds of relational damage now. And uh, that, that you wait, that you climb in the cell with us and you don't leave us, you don't abandon us, you don't humiliate us, and yet you lovingly expose us and we need it. And so um, I'm, I'm just asking that you continue to do this. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We will have more, please. <laughs> and, 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 and Jesus, thank you for constantly being uh, the touch point for our humanity. And uh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And, uh, and, and may this simply increase. May we all be learning how to make choices according to the truth of our being so that the way of our being can match it. And, and I, anybody listening, I just, I, I know you know them. You know, we have this conversation with no planning, no prearrangements and stuff like that. And, and, uh, but you know them. You know who's who's listening, and you know the uniqueness of how each of them have been hurt, and you know how to spark the hope. And, and I'm just asking that you do exactly that, and grant to us the strength to make some hard choices and take hard risks in order to learn how to trust not just you, but human beings. You know, God with skin on, and uh, and for these things I. I thank you in the name of the Father who loves us and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Paul. It was a You're pleasure. welcome, bud.